I'm Marshall Kozlov. And I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. The welcome back in our introduction has taken particular meaning because we took a few weeks off. We were consistently publishing these episodes since January. This is the longest, as someone who hosts multiple podcasts, I've ever gone publishing consistent content. So I appreciate everyone giving us a little bit of time to take a break. But a lot of things happened. And we've got a lot of really exciting episodes coming up, but this is going to be a slightly looser conversation just to really reintroduce the two of us to the audience, focus on the themes we're interested in and all of that. So Mike, we last spoke a little bit around the anniversary of 9-11, which has caused a lot of people in our space to obviously spend time reflecting, thinking about the past 20 years and how things are looking going forward. I'd just love to start by discussing your expansive thoughts, which I'm sure you have, around how you're feeling about the state of U.S. foreign policy, where we've been, where we've going, and we can just kind of go from there. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, welcome back, Marshall. Great to see you. Uh, our audience can't see you, but I can see you. You're looking good. Thank you. Uh, tanned, rested, and ready, as as Richard Nixon said. Uh, yeah, those are that's those are big questions you have just asked. They've been on my mind, those exact questions have been on my mind since the pullout from Afghanistan, because I found myself, in as I followed the debate about Afghanistan, um, to be in the mushy middle. You were uh, in the middle. When it, I was in the mushy middle, yeah, between, well, I, I, you know, there, there was no, <laughs> no uh, nobody was standing up and uh, for good reason, for good reason, nobody was standing up and defending the pullout. I mean, I, I, I really do think uh, the way the pullout was handled was was really indefensible. Um, having said that, uh, it was clear to me uh, from the from the moment the uh, president made his first statements about it. Uh, that there was no way he was going to reverse himself on it. And and so much of the commentary was about how he should reverse himself um, and about all of the reasons why it was very important for us to stay there and so on. Um, and I my feeling was that the, those of us who thought we should stay, and, and I, I, I would be one of those, uh, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a different context, um, we lost the debate a long time ago. And that's what has been on my, that's what's been on my mind. And, and, and I, I, it, for me, it's an issue about much bigger than just Afghanistan. Um, it's about the whole um, intellectual basis for, intellectual and political basis for a forward-leaning American uh, posture um, in, in, in that part of the world and in, in, in the world in general. I, I had a, an experience that left a deep mark on me back in 2009 when I was working in the Defense Department. I was in a meeting um, with a bunch of generals um, that, uh, that was uh, focused mainly on Afghanistan. And I remember as I was listening to the discussion around the table, thinking that if we went and, 
and, and asked each one of those generals individually, uh, why are we in Afghanistan? Uh, who are we fighting? What are we fighting about? What does victory look like? And how do we get to victory? There would have been a different answer from every one of the individuals around the, uh, the table. And, and, and beyond that, not, not to make it a statement about the military, if we had pulled the, if we had pulled the senior leadership, and I, I was working at the time, that was the Bush administration. If we had pulled the senior, you know, the, the, the top 10, top 20 people working on foreign policy in the administration and ask them those questions, we would have gotten a different, a, a different answer from every individual. And the same is true of the Obama administration. And the same is true of the Trump administration and, and, and so on. And I just, I, I just think it's, um, not possible to convince the American people about you know, uh, the utility of a, uh, you know, the necessity of a military commitment when there isn't clarity at the top about what about uh, about what it's all about. There's always going to be a justification for for staying somewhere when you once you once you know the minute the United States commits troops, there's a uh, um, you know it there it creates a. Uh, it, it creates a, it has a momentum to it, and there's a, it creates its own rationale for being there. Uh, and you can always make an intelligent, um, uh, intelligent argument to, to stay the course. But it, it, especially with Afghanistan, that has always, that has always bothered me. Um, and when I saw, you know, some of the, 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 what I would call mission creep in, in, in Afghanistan, the, the idea that we're going to build a democracy in Afghanistan, the idea that we're going to change the culture radically and, you know, create an environment that's, uh, I, I, this is just one example, you know, there was a, a tweet that the U.S. Embassy put out in, in Kabul, put out in, in April about uh, LGBTQ rights and, uh, and how we're committed to that. Um, the, idea that, the idea that that's an idea that we're going to sell to Afghanistan was, was always to me um, was always to me um, far-fetched, uh, but we ha we live in such a world now in the United States where, if back in April when they had put that tweet, I didn't I didn't retweet it in April. I retweeted it. I, I retweeted it after the pullout to say, look, imagine if you were a if imagine if you were a um, you know a young Afghan gay person, and you and you you retweeted that and you started going around Kabul saying, yes, I th this is. Uh, uh, th this is the kind of society that I want. Uh, and, uh, and you did that believing that the Americans and all that they had built were going to stay in, in, in Kabul. What would your life be like today after the U.S. suddenly pulled out and the, and the, and, and the Taliban took over? And, and that's my, my point isn't about, my point isn't about, isn't to, isn't to, to make a point about, um, uh, uh, about in, in anything to do with gay rights. It's to say what, no one was thinking when they were pushing this kind of cultural agenda in Afghanistan, what if we don't stay? That wasn't, wasn't even on anyone's mind. And if you had said that at the time, then you would have been attacked on a moral, on a moral grounds rather than a, a practical grounds. And that's, that's what bothers me about American foreign policy. It goes way beyond, way beyond Afghanistan. It's that we're, we're so often, when we talk about the Middle East, I call it the virtual Middle East. I started calling it the virtual Middle East when I, was, when I worked in academia. 
academia, I, I came out of Middle Eastern studies and Middle Eastern studies is, is, is the most useless, um, the most useless academic discipline. I mean, there are probably academic disciplines that are more useless if I, if I, if I surveyed all of them and, and knew them, but I'm sure that, 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 that Middle Eastern studies is very high on the list of useless, uh, you know, useless endeavors in which our society is p uh, pumping a lot of money. Um, useless because it creates a picture of the Middle East that does not actually exist. When I read academic articles, which I don't do, thankfully I don't work in academia anymore, so I don't have to read peer-reviewed articles. Also, worthless waste of time. But the uh, when I read when I, when I when every now and then I, a peer-reviewed article does come across my desk, and when I read it, I am m almost always struck by the distance between what I'm reading on the page and what I have seen with my own eyes in the Middle East or what I even get from, uh, from newspaper accounts, which are themselves all uh, uh, distorted. I don't recognize the real world in it. And that's, uh, uh, so there's a kind of larger, uh, this has been a long rambling answer to your question, but I, I, I think that we Americans, after 20 or 30 years of being the absolute dominant power on earth, a power that can inject its military into any, uh, you know, almost any arena uh, in the world and become the dominant actor, have more often than not been talking about ourselves, about our fantasies of what we want the world to be, than actually dealing with the powers on the ground as they as as they exist and the likely outcomes as they as they exist. That's what strikes me. What's mainly on my mind when I look at Afghanistan, we pull out of Afghanistan and the Taliban, who was our enemy, now controls more of Afghanistan than it ever controlled before, we, before 20 years of U.S. military effort. Something very similar has gone on in Iraq. It's not exactly the same, but we pull out of Iraq and, and, and the, uh, the power that benefits the most is Iran, who we were supposedly pushing back against in, 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 in Iraq all those um, uh, all those years. So uh, there's there's been a there's been some great successes since September 11th. The, our government has kept the United States safe from massive from massive um, terrorist attacks. We've created this incredible um, counterterrorism architecture, which is very effective in a tactical sense. But on a strategic level, we haven't figured out how it is to use our power so that we reshape the international system so that we weaken our major state um, uh, uh, competitors. And so that's, that's, what, that's, what, uh, uh, that's what's on my mind, Marshall. There's a lot to talk about there. That was a long rambling answer, but I, I maybe, maybe said a couple of things that you could pick up on and we could have a discussion about. Yeah, and look, at this point, I'm a professional interviewer, so I kept it vague when I asked the question and was expecting you to give a long answer with lots of things we could pick up on. Here's something I'm really curious about because it relates back to a theme you hit in the trailer for the show, which was the academy and the impact of the way higher education is changing. I'd like you to rant a little more about Middle Eastern studies because speaking of this 20 year period, that marked your transition from the academic path at Princeton to government think tanks, foreign policy, et cetera. So I'm really curious if you could explain 
going into 2001, going into September 11th, like what was the state of Middle Eastern studies? Like what actually was the perception of the way the Middle East worked? And then over the course of the last 20 years, I know you just said that you haven't particularly in spending your time reading peer-reviewed articles, and that's more than fine. But just in terms of just like the space in general, I'm really actually curious how the war on terror and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan really shifted the vision, perception of the Middle East within the academy's specific perspective. Uh, I can only answer a part of that because I, I, I divorced. I went through a divorce of academia um, uh, in, um, in 2004, Actually, I tried to remarry academia for two, for two years in 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 two thousand and nine to eleven. We'll 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 forget about my my failed remarriage, uh, but but I basically divorced it in two thousand four, and I haven't um, uh, I haven't really looked back, um, and I'm I'm happy to be out of that marriage. But it was the for me the defining I think experience of my life, my disaffection from academia. Uh, because I had spent my, you know, I, I got a PhD and I, I wanted to be a, um, I wanted to be an academic. Uh, I had a job at Princeton, which is the top of the, you know, the top of the profession. Um, and, uh, um, but I was increasingly unhappy there uh, because of what I'm talking about. I'll give you an example of what, you know, 9-11 and, the, and, and academia. So I, I, I had a, a, I had a student uh, who after 9/11 um, immediately went and signed up for the Marines, and uh, very smart guy, very patriotic, uh, um, and he went off to fight in Iraq, and he sent me an email. Uh, he sent me an email from the battlefield in Iraq, which is you know, which at the time was really, and we're kind of we're used to this now with uh, with communications. At the time, it just sort of blew me away that he could be halfway across the world in a war, and be emailing me, you know, his former teacher, and he said, you know, uh, professor, I've got this problem. I, I'm I can't remember where he was, somewhere in southern Iraq. And he, 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 he was commanding, commanding men on the ground. And all of a sudden, he's interacting with tribal sheikhs in, in, uh, in, in, in southern Iraq. And he's, you know, this is a 20-something-year-old kid, smart kid, but, but nothing in his life prepared him to be adjudicating local <laughs> conflicts between tribal leaders in southern Iraq. And he writes me and he says, can you send? He said, I, "You know, they're all coming to me with their claims and counterclaims, and I, I don't, I don't understand the, you know, the the human terrain, the social terrain in which I'm operating. Can you send me some articles on tribal politics in in Iraq?" And I just, I just thought, I, I am in working in a discipline in which. It is now an absolute dogma that the concept tribe is a racist concept developed by, by racist white Europeans to dominate non-white people. So if I, if, I, if I, in an academic article, even use the word tribe, I'm kicked out of my profession. Right? That's an example of how, I mean, this is a great example of how um, 
the what we would now call progressive or woke dogmas. I mean, this, the, the woke movement was incubated in the universities. So I've been dealing with it in one way or another in my life since the 1990s. It's now been, after it incubated and enough people were uh, indoctrinated into it in the, on the universities, they're now, they, they've now, uh, you know, um, deployed it in our, into our national politics. Something, by the way, I thought was never possible, but, they, but it, it apparently... Uh, yeah, that was a short-sighted uh, appraisal on my part. So, sorry, not to interrupt, but just what you said was fascinating because as someone who obviously entered the space away from those 1990s Edward Said-style debates in academia, can you actually explain what their argument around tribes were? Because moving forward, once we actually engaged in the post 9-11 era, it just became common parlance to refer to tribes. That wasn't, that was a space where I think that was a good articulation you gave there of how the academic discussion was divorced from how things would look on the ground. So I see plenty of center left Democrats today referring to tribes, referring to these groups. So back in the nineties, what argument were they actually make? I, I, historic, I don't understand. I, 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 I don't understand what they're saying. The, it's it's the basic you 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 hit the nail on the head when you said Edward Said. It's the basic Saidian argument that in the nineteenth century, uh, European imperialism uh, uh, developed that the 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 discipline of studying non-Western societies, Orientalism, uh, was cannot be dissociated the, the 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 supposedly objective disinterested study of foreign peoples and foreign societies and their history and culture and so on cannot be dissociated from power right this is what the progressive left is the progressive left um, says everything is power everything is power relations um, and and so all of the concepts that that were developed um, including just commonsensical concepts like tribes. I mean, the, the reason we call them tribes is because they, that's what they call themselves, <laughs> right? But all of these in a, in, a, in, a, in a Western academic setting are very problematic categories, which were developed whether the, whether the people who developed them realize it or not, because they are operating in a certain power um, structure, were developed in order to dominate non-Western peoples. And so the the task of the the task of the woke generation is to purge uh, is is to purge our um, academic discourse and our, our ac the academic endeavor of all of these racist what we would now say Orientalism is a code word for racism right all of these these supposedly racist comments. So one of the ways that you make a career, I, you made, I, I, like I say, I divorced academia. I think it's a, mm -hmm. it's a you know, the uh, Middle Eastern studies, unfortunately, is, uh, is uh, with, with some real notable exceptions. There's some wonderful people I met along the way who are absolutely brilliant. Obviously, not every academic is a Looney Tunes crazy progressive, but the but the the uh, discourse, the discussion, the culture in academia is dominated by these woke um, gatekeepers, and uh, and and they so they they 
they um, they have an inordinate influence over everything that happens because they can destroy your career in a second if you you know if you start using words like tribe. So um, uh, so you make a career by I it, I remember there's one article I read. Uh, we don't need to waste our time on the details, but a, a great a, a great way to make a career is to go find an article that some famous Orientalist, some famous person in the, the founder in the field of Middle Eastern studies, wrote, and then take it apart and show how it was really racist. So there was a guy named uh, Gustav von Grunbaum, who wrote an article, and there was a there's a there was an academic making her, uh, you know, making her name for herself, and so she dug up von Grun von von Grunbaum's long dead. Nobody's writing about anything von Grunbaum wrote about, and uh, but uh, she published a long article that was you know was hailed as very courageous because she discovered all of this thought, uh, um, all these thought crimes by von Grunbaum. Uh, and if, so basically how you make it in academia, one way to make it in academia is like you go dig up a dead person and you execute him in the public square. And then everyone, and then everyone, everyone heralds you as being really courageous because you dug up a dead person and shot them. You know, it doesn't, it's, uh, um, you know, no, of course, nobody's going to come to the aid, you know, come to the support of the dead person and the dead person isn't there anymore to, to himself. Um, but that's how you do it. A academics are to total cowards, by the way. You've never met a more cowardly person than an, than an academic uh, because it's a complete, it's a, it's, a, um, it's a profession that is driven by consensus. You can't, you can't get a, you don't get, you don't get, cho you get chosen for your jobs by committee. You get approved by committee. You get, you get, um, uh, you get your job, uh, you get your promotions by committee. You get your grants by committee. So you're always keeping everybody happy and, 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 and you want total consensus in the committee. You don't want any, um, you don't want anybody who has uh, a disagreement. So, you know, there, this, 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 uh, this arena of our society, which could be in, you know, in a, in, in a proper model, could be actually um, a, a wonderful um, uh, arena for promoting free thought, uh, promoting uh, interesting debate and so on, is actually completely free of any debate. I mean, so find, if you find an academic debate, I guarantee you it's going to be boring. It's going to be boring because they can't. You can't actually talk about interesting things in academia without losing your job. I'm going to take a total pivot to another part of your discussion because it's actually a place where I slightly disagree with you. This relates to the politics. You're not allowed of, to disagree with me. <laughs> yeah, given what you just said, reform <laughs> consensus only podcasting. You you made the point that people were not making a successful political case for the presence in Afghanistan and that debate was lost. But the thing that really struck me is as soon as Biden made a forward action on Afghanistan and things started going the wrong way, the polling on the question entirely switched. So people went from supporting withdrawal to opposing withdrawal. And what that convinced me of is the fact that there just really were not that many people who were actually voting and making serious decisions based on Afghanistan. I think people were making serious decisions based on the Iraq war in 2006, 2007, 2008. But I just do not think, despite everything, right, despite the whole President Trump overthrew the foreign policy establishment idea, which is definitely true to a certain degree, I still am not convinced that the 
political case is one that has been won or lost in either direction. Given if something good happens, I think someone will be rewarded for it. And if something bad happens, someone would also be unrewarded for it. Um, I think given the level of, at least from a certain perspective, like the lack of like violence against U.S. troops in the country. And yes, I know that um, something people who supported the draw will point out was that that was only happening because there was a deal to leave in the first place. But I think that type of presence was politically sustainable. So I'm just curious, like for more of your thoughts on how the politics of the presence in countries like Afghanistan, when you are not in the middle of a 2006 to 2008 Iraqi civil war, how that actually looks. Um, so I don't, I, unfortunately, I don't think there's as big a disagreement between uh, between you and me as you uh, as, as as you suggested there would be. But let, let's see. I, I think it goes like this. Uh, let, let's let, let let me describe to you what I presume were Joe Biden's calculations, and then and then take that apart. Biden recognized one thing. Uh, and that was that there was a political constituency in the United States, and that includes some significant segment of Trump's base and 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 his progressive base um, that wanted to end wars. Right? He made a decision. He wants to. He wanted a big grand pullout from Afghanistan in time for 9/11, so he could say, "I ended the war," just like Barack Obama. Barack Obama wrote. Uh, um, uh, you know, he wrote that story for himself before he pulled out of Iraq. I'm the, the Republicans make wars and Democrats end wars. And, and uh, given the fact that Joe Biden won the presidency by 44,000 votes distributed across three uh, states, I'm talking about in the Electoral College, that's a razor thin margin. He needs his progressives. He needs them. So his, he needs his progressives and he's, and he's very fearful of the Trump coalition. He wants to destroy the Trump coalition. So there's a, there's a little bit of Do Donald Trump's America first in Joe Biden now that Joe Biden won't admit, but it's quite obvious if you listen to the way he's talking. He's taken a couple of pages out of, um, out of Trump's, uh, Trump's book. So, Yes, when you say polling in general will show that there's a there's a constituency in the United States that would that would that would sustain the mission in Afghanistan. There's also a counter there's also a counter constituency that really does want to get out, and that's the one that Biden was playing to and concerned and 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 concerned about, um, and that's already a well entrenched public opinion in that in that constituency that's not one that's gonna that, that that's not one that is gonna um flip on a dime if there's a terrorist attack here or there they become very skeptical about american military adventures abroad so the temptation for biden regardless of the national security consequences the electoral uh the electoral um temptation was to play to that constituency and to try to and to try to mold public, you know, the, the, the public perception of our steps in ways that we're going to, um, you know, shape public perception in such a way that would, um, um, that would, that would play to that well-established worldview. That's one calculation. The other calculation was that, was, was that, uh, an awareness that the low, the low number of American deaths in Afghanistan was in part 
a, um, a result of a deal that had been done with the Taliban um, uh, uh, on the expectation that the United States was pulling out. So, yes, Biden could have stayed, but Biden knew that if he that to stay with 2,500 troops and to continue to, to support significant counterterrorism operations against the Taliban was going to mean that the Taliban might start striking American targets. So it meant that to sustain the 2,500, he may find himself at certain moments having to order even more significant, uh, you know, uh, he, he may have to order surges in Afghanistan, as Obama did and, 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 and as Trump did as well. So if you, what do you call it, surge or just an increase in activity, however you want to, however you want to call it. And that was going to be costly to him politically. He thought, I, you know, this is, I want, I, I, on the one hand, I want the benefit of, uh, uh, I want the benefit of the pullout, A, and then, and B, I want to avoid the cost of the, 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 the ongoing cost for that constituency that doesn't uh, support um, um, military operations abroad. I want to avoid the cost of continuous op uh, uh, operations. Then the next calculation he made, once he'd made the decision, the next calculation was very obviously when he just started, uh, you know, brassing it out as, as all of these, uh, all of this evidence of, of incredibly bad planning and um, bad intelligence and everything else came to light. He just decided to brass it out. And the calculation was when the when people go to vote in 2022 or 2024, they're going to give me more credit for the pullout than they're going to hold me responsibility for hold me responsible for the way the pullout was 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 taking place it took place you know he uh, uh, and and the the once he once the screw up the, the magnitude of the screw up was obvious to everyone turning around and surging you know in order to it was 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 not going to was not going to get him anything politically so he just brassed it out. Those are the those are the calculations, and I the the so I agree with you that there's a significant part of the of public opinion that would have supported it if it was explained. My my point my bigger point is that is that um, is that this constituency against military operations, military interventions in 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 the Middle East is a bipartisan constituency. Mm -hmm. It's very significant. And those of us, and, the, my, and my argument is with my fellow, my, my fellow foreign policy experts, those of us who are making policy recommendations that don't, that, 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 that dismiss that constituency are not dealing with reality. That's, that's my, that's my, that's my simple point is that, I look at my people who think like I do. I believe in a forward-leaning America around the world. I believe we have very significant adversaries in the Middle East and in East Asia, uh, uh, and that uh, and that a uh, you know bring the boys home, uh, fortress America, or, or, or you know uh, an isolated America is 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 not the way to deal with those adversaries. But on the other hand, I see that there is not an appetite in the American electorate to support the kind of military operations that we've been engaged in for the last for the last two decades. So 
we should be thinking about how do you how do you have an American how do you have a significant American influence and presence abroad without 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 these military interventions. I look at my you know people who think like I do generally. I, we've lost every argument since I, I, I started becoming aware of this when I saw when I was in the White House, 2005 to seven. I saw George W. Bush basically decide without ever saying it that he was not going to take military action in order to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, and and he, he didn't actually decide it that way. At a certain point, you know, he avoided the decision, avoided the decision, avoided the decision, uh, and then he passed it on to his successor, Obama, and then I saw what Obama did with it. Uh, but, you know, you know, where you really saw it was uh, the, the, the kind of things that I'm talking about was when the Israelis discovered that the Syrians had a nuclear reactor, probably built by the North Koreans, possibly with the support of the Iranians, um, Bush decided not to attack it uh, when there was very little possibility of a counterattack by the Syrians against the United States. And when the Israelis came and said, okay, we'll do it, Bush didn't say go for it. He, he gave, he gave, uh, he, his, he gave Prime Minister Olmert a kind of yellow light. He, Bush personally was, was, was supportive of the, of the, um, of the Israeli action against the Syrian reactor, um, but his team, significant members of his team, including Bob Gates, including Condoleezza Rice, they were they were not in favor of Israeli action against the Syrian the, the Syrian reactor, and that was largely in in response to this constituency, which already existed that I'm talking about, the bipartisan constituency against military interventions uh, uh, interventions abroad. So since that time, that's that's back that's back in 2007. Since 2007 until yesterday, I have seen presidents, uh, you know, Bush, uh, uh, Obama, uh, Trump, and now Biden. How many is that? That's four four presidents. Not listen to people like me who think that uh, who, who 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 favor a you know, a forward-leaning American foreign policy. I drew, I drew the conclusion. They're not going to listen to us. We better start thinking differently and giving presidents advice that they can actually follow. You know, this is a good segue to the last big question that ties together your earlier point about democracy and democracy promotion and the LGBTQ tweet that went out from the embassy and just what you're saying, which is that what you are highlighting, I've always appreciated this about your abilities as a policy person. You understand the tie between the politics and the policy, and you don't think that it's the mark of a proper statesman or statesperson, whatever, to say, it's all just totally separate. This is just policy. Given the fact that we're talking about constituencies, if you are Obama, if you're Biden, even if you're George W. Bush, given the fact that many people who are even hawkish on foreign policy tend to be more socially liberal, socially left in their politics, how do you not send tweets like that out? So for example, from my perspective, the purpose of the LGBTQ tweet isn't necessarily for Afghani 
public consumption. The purpose of that is to illustrate the nature of what the American forward-leaning project looks like. Because it seems to me, if we're going to stick with a metaphor for a second, the more democratic, the more expansive, the more human rights-y, to use a technical term, parts of that foreign policy performance are the velvet glove over the steel hand of American forward-leaning power. I don't see a world where American presidents, especially Democrats like Obama and Biden, would be capable of keeping their political coalitions together if they weren't making those types of moves. That's just my political read. So I'm just curious about how you think all this plays together. I want to read you a a passage from uh, Present at the Creation. This is uh, Dean Acheson, who was Truman's Secretary of State, leading architect. He was a a great Secretary of State, um, and he was a leading architect of the containment strategy against the Soviet Union, which I think most foreign policy experts would say was a successful American strategy. Right. And he said, you know, when they were in, 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 in the late 40s, when they were putting together the containment strategy and discussing among themselves what the Soviet Union was, what the United States was, and how the two of us differed, and what's our, what was our, what was our um, motivating concept, is the word that, that uh, Atchison used, and what was the Soviet Union's motivating concept. Let me let me read this to you, and I think it's I. This is I want to go back t- to the Dean Acheson way of making foreign policy. That's what I want. And here's what Acheson says: in in putting together the strategy document, we, they decided that it was true and understandable to describe the Russian motivating concept. But sorry, let me just say, let me just stop there and say, I, I, I love the language "true and understandable," right? So it's we 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 work on the basis of truth, but we also want to present it in a way that the average person can grasp it. You know, simply, it was true and understandable to describe the Russian motivating concept as being that quote, no state is friendly which is not subservient, unquote, and our motivating concept was that quote, no state is unfriendly which in return for our respect for its rights, respects the rights of other states, unquote. While our own society felt no compulsion to bring all societies into conformity with it, the Kremlin hierarchy was not content merely to entrench its regime, but wished to expand its control directly and indirectly over people within its reach. How did it happen? So basically you said, look, the Soviet Union has a monolithic system, and it demands that any ally of it be part of its monolithic system. The United States, by contrast, has no such monolithic understanding in terms of cultural culture, society, and so forth. We're not, we, are not, we are not demanding that everyone who works with us against the Soviet Union and everyone whom we call a friend is a democracy that respects human rights exactly as we do. Uh, that, now, somewhere along the line in the late Cold War, the United States found human rights as a very effective thing to push against the Soviet Union and pushed it. But now the memory, the memory in the, uh, you know, in the system 
of the strategy that we used to defeat the Soviet Union has become we demand conformity among all of our allies <laughs> to, uh, um, uh, in, in order to be successful. It's not what happened. It's not how we saw the world in the late 1940s when, when we felt weak. When we felt weak. We felt weak because the Soviet Union had, the, the Truman administration, the Soviet Union had all of these divisions in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe, and we understood that if the Soviet Union decided to do it, it could take over Western Europe very quickly and we'd be very hard-pressed to stop it. Only with nuclear weapons could we stop it. So we felt, we felt weak, we felt vulnerable, and the Truman administration was under enormous pressure, just like our own system is now, to bring the boys home. Truman, Truman, didn't, Truman couldn't say to the American public, all those Soviet divisions are, are lined up against Europe, so we have to, we have to continue uh, the draft and we have to put, um, uh, uh, you know, American boys in France and Germany and so on uh, and so on and so forth. So they had no problem. They had no problem becoming allies with countries that wanted to ally with us but didn't that didn't share our values. We are now in a similar situation again. For the first time since the end of the Cold War, the United States uh, understands that if one of its adversaries, China, decides to launch a war against Taiwan, which it, may, which it seems to be thinking about very seriously, we could lose that war. We don't, that hasn't been something that we, we, we we've been in this, we've been in this hi, hiatus from history for the last 20 or 30 years where we thought we can put our forces in any, uh, in any arena and very quickly be the dominant actor um, so we don't really have to think about allies. We don't have to think about limitations on our power. We can totally control the airspace. The Chinese have quickly done, gone through a military buildup, and now they can make themselves the dominant actor in that, in that theater. And, and we probably, we, or may not, have the ability to match them. That's something that's starting to impress itself on our leadership, uh, on our, especially on our, on our military leadership, the wider society has yet to completely, uh, um, the, to completely absorb that, um, that reality. But that's where, that's where we're at. And I think, therefore, what we have to do is we have to go back to what we used to do. And by the way, we're doing it. We're doing it, but we're doing it wrong. The Chinese are committing genocide. Genocide in, 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 in Xinjiang. And we spend more time. Look at listen. Look at all of the. Look at all of the. Uh, look at all of the uh, time Congress has spent in the last couple of years criticizing our ally Saudi Arabia for human rights, not criticizing Iran, not criticizing China, but criticizing our ally Sa uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. Now there's been a decision there to uh, to impose American values on one party, but not on another. And the decision was made in part according to power relationships, right? Because they don't wanna, they don't wanna deal with the consequences, economic and otherwise, of actually criticizing the most horrendous human rights abuser on the, um, uh, on, on, on the planet. So, um, you know, I, I, in, answer to your, in answer to your question, um, it's a problem. I don't know how to, <laughs> I mean, it's a problem that we are Americans. We do have certain values, and anything that we do, 
we're going to bring those those values to bear. Um, I would just like I would just like us to do it with a little bit more forethought, judiciousness, and and perspective on ourselves. That's the that's the thing that uh, that bothers me: lack of perspective on ourselves. That is an excellent place to leave it. I think Mike actually really just captured the questions that we're interested in examining on the podcast, the topics, and that was actually a really useful frame for how that post-war 1945 to 1949 period really is going to be a useful analog to thinking about the decisions that we're making today. So uh, with all that, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. We'll be back at you with plenty of really excellent episodes across a variety of huge topics. A huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work, and we'll see you all back at it next week.